So our New Testament reading this morning comes from the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, verses 21 through 35. This is part of our parable series that we're in right now. Let's listen now for what the Spirit of God is saying to us and to the church. Then Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord offered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, pay me what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you, but he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you have not had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts on this, your holy word, be acceptable in your sight and life-giving to us and through us as your people. Amen. So tomorrow is Independence Day, and I thought I would start today with a simple question. What is Independence Day about? Is it about fireworks? Is it about hot dogs? Is it about patriotic music? Is it about getting a day off work? I would like to suggest something a little different. That at its core, July 4th is really about memory. It's a way of remembering our history with the understanding that what we remember about our history is what will define us as a nation. That's why memory is so important, because what you remember about the past shapes who you are today. And that might seem like an obvious truth, but I think it bears repeating that it's not quote-unquote objective facts that define us. It's what we remember about those facts. So for example, two people might grow up in the same household, and one person will tell you that they had a good childhood, And the person who grew up in the exact same environment might tell you that they had a terrible childhood. Of course, the objective facts are identical. The only difference is memory. 
What do you remember about the past? And is your memory accurate? For the person who says they had a terrible childhood, is it possible that there are things that you are not remembering? Now hold that thought. I want to come back to that in just a moment. Let's, let's first talk a little more about July 4th. This holiday preserves a memory of what happened right here in Philadelphia in 1776 that this country started as an idea. Of course, it was not an idea that was ever perfectly practiced, but the idea, I think we would all agree, was a good idea, that people should be self-governing, that it's better to be self-governing than, than to be ruled by kings, that people should be allowed to be who they are, and to worship the way they want without risk of persecution. That is a pretty good idea. But only if you remember it. Because the truth is that people forget. And I can give you a very personal example of this fact. I grew up outside of a city called Vicksburg, Mississippi. There was an important Civil War battle in Vicksburg. It was a brutal campaign the Union Army surrounded the city. It cut off its food supplies. It proceeded to lay siege to the city for over a month. The citizens of Vicksburg quickly ran out of food. They began living in caves to escape the cannonballs. They began to eat mules, dogs, cats, even rats. Ultimately, over 20,000 soldiers and civilians were killed in this campaign. And here's where it gets really interesting. The date that Vicksburg finally surrendered to General Grant was July 4th, 1883. And therefore, in the minds of many people in Vicksburg, July 4th was not a good date. It was a date of humiliation. In fact, for 80 years, I'm not making this up, for 80 years after the Civil War, July 4th was never celebrated as a holiday in Vicksburg, Mississippi. Right? And that, of course, clearly affected people in Vicksburg, their identity as Americans. And as an aside, if you want to know the source of today's partisan divide, why is it that so many people in the South still don't trust Washington, I would like to suggest that it has a lot to do with what we remember about dates like July 4th. Now, it's a little easier for us here at Old Pine because, of course, we live four blocks from Independence Hall. We are surrounded by all of this wonderful history. We are constantly reminded that July 4th is a good date, but it's hard even for us and that has to do with the way our brains work. And what I'm referring to here is something called negativity bias. This is a very well-documented phenomenon. It is a 100% proven fact that the human mind tends to remember bad things a lot more than it does good things. Let me ask you a few questions. Which are you more likely to remember about the past? That time that someone was nice to you 10 years ago or the time that somebody offended you 10 years ago? Which are you more likely to fixate on? I mean, let's say both are true. Both happen. Both are objectively real. Which one are you more likely to think about, right? It's always going to be the negative one. Are you going to think about the love that you received when you were a child, which was real, or the neglect and anger that you felt as a child? Both are, are true. I'm not saying they're not both true, but which one do you remember? Are you more likely to remember the 50 nice things that people probably say to you on a daily basis or the one critical thing that somebody said to you last year? What psychologists tell us is that 
most people don't see the world accurately. We don't see the world objectively because our brains are hardwired for negativity. Now, if you wanna get scientific for a moment, you can kind of explain this if you look at evolution. It's probably true that when we were primitive people living in a dangerous world, it was really important to focus on negative realities. I mean, your life depended on fixating on where that lion lives and avoiding that, that lion. It was really important to think about negative things all the time because your survival depended on it. But of course, that evolutionary background means that today, when we no longer live in the jungle with lions, we continue to invest more emotion in negative memories than in positive ones. How many of you have had the experience of getting stuck in a memory of pain? Somebody hurt you a long time ago and that memory haunts you. You can't get past it. I mean, it might as well have happened yesterday because the feelings are so strong. And of course, those feelings, those memories affect your life in profound ways. Maybe they make it difficult for you to feel joy. Maybe they make it difficult for you to trust other people in your relationships right now. That's what negativity bias does. It means that while good and bad things are real, we invest 50 times more energy remembering the bad things than we do the positive ones. So what's the cure? Well, believe it or not, the cure has been part of our religious tradition from the very beginning. It's called forgiveness. You see, forgiveness, contrary to what many people think, is not the same thing as forgetting. That, that phrase, forgive and forget, really has no place, I think, in the life of healing. Forgiveness does not mean to forget. Forgiveness does not mean that bad things never happen. Forgiveness simply means that you begin to see life more accurately. Yes, there were bad things, but there were also good things. Forgiveness allows us to let go of the pain of those bad things so that we can accurately see that life contains a lot of good things too, that there is love in life, there is grace, and there is mercy in life. You see, forgiveness makes our vision more accurate. At least this, I think, is what Jesus seems to be suggesting in that parable we just read. Do you remember that parable? I know it seems like I'm probably talking about something totally different right now. We are getting back to that parable because what this parable about is memory, and yet it begins with a question about forgiveness. Do you remember that? Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive the people in my life? I mean, I think we can all relate to that question. Peter is struggling with his own negativity bias. He's fixated on the harms that people have done to him. He's desperately asking Jesus, can I just give up on these people, please? Can I just give in to my negativity bias? Can I wash my hands of all these people who have wronged me? And Jesus says, Peter, I hate to break it to you, but seven times is not enough, you have to forgive 77 times. And here again, Jesus is being funny. I've been stressing throughout this series that Jesus had an incredible sense of humor, and there will come a point in time, I promise you, when you will begin to laugh. I'll be able to convey this in a way that will cause you to laugh, because he's actually quite a funny storyteller. Peter says, do I have to forgive seven times? And Jesus says, 77 times. That was funny. But of course, there was a point to it. The point is that there is no limit to forgiveness. There's never a point at which we can give in to the view that life is essentially negative because it's not. No matter how bad life gets, life itself is still a gift. 
We didn't create this world. We didn't create ourselves. Objectively, every breath we take is an unearned gift. So how does one come to understand that? That's what this parable is all about. Jesus says there was a king who had a slave. This slave had racked up an almost incomprehensible debt to this king, 10,000 talents, which is an absurdly large amount of money. Again, this is meant to be funny. If you were hearing this at the time, you'd probably be laughing. It would kind of be like telling somebody they have to forgive 77 times because a talent was the largest uh, denomination of currency in the ancient world and 10,000 was as high as Roman numerals could get. And so if you say 10,000 talents, it's sort of like saying a zillion. It's a debt that is literally beyond comprehension. And the point is that this debt is so large that it is literally impossible for this slave to ever pay it back. He could never in his life make this much money and therefore he only has one recourse, forgiveness. He pleads with the king, please don't do what it is your right to do. Don't sell me. Don't sell my wife and my children. I don't want to be separated from these people whom I love. And this king is so moved with pity that he does something that no earthly king would ever do. He agrees to forgive all of the debt that this slave owes. It's just an astonishing display of mercy. And of course, Jesus' community knew all too well what earthly kings were like. Like, they didn't forgive debts. You know, you can find testimony from the first century that describes in horrific detail the methods of torture that tax collectors would use to force people to pay back their debts. And so a story like this about a king who forgives is a clue that we're not really talking about an earthly king. Jesus is talking about God. God gives us the gift of life, but he does more than that. He seeks us out when we run away. When we are in the pigsty like the prodigal son, He runs to us and puts his own coat on our shoulders. An earthly king would be far too embarrassed to forgive a debt like that. But God goes naked to the cross to forgive our debts. And so what we have here is a picture of priceless grace. Now, let's see what the slave's response to this is. His life has been spared. I mean, he must be humbled in a profound way. He must be overcome with gratitude. Maybe we can imagine him weeping at the king's feet. King, you you had every right to send me to the dungeon and to sell everything that I own and all the people in my life, but instead you've given me a new lease on life. I can never repay you. But he quickly forgets. Because look what happens next. He leaves the king's presence, and who does he run into? A slave who owes him money. Wouldn't you know it? This slave who has just been forgiven this massive amount of debt, turns out he was running his own loans on the side. Now compared to what he owed the king, his friend's debt is tiny, a hundred denarii. I mean, just a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of what the 10,000 talents were that this first slave slave was forgiven. And this second slave, he, he begs for forgiveness just like the first slave. He begs for mercy from the slave who had just been granted mercy. And of course, you would think that this first slave would be in a very generous mood. Friend, I was just given my life back. Of course, I'll forgive your debt. But that's not what he does. He grabs him by the throat. He is merciless. 
He has him thrown into jail. He says, you will not be released until you can pay me what you owe me. Of course, he's a hypocrite. I mean, it's clearly a superficial message of this parable that this guy is not paying it forward, is he? Clearly, he's kind of a bad person, right? And yet every single person in this room will leave the sanctuary today and we will be exactly like him. We will forget the debts that we have been forgiven and we will be merciless to people who have hurt us. You see, this is a story about memory. What really is the first slave's problem? He doesn't remember what was done for him. He was rescued from the pit, and yet no sooner does he leave the king's presence than he denies mercy to a man who was in the same position that he was just moments earlier. You want help from me? How dare you? I don't forgive people who owe me money. You knew the terms of our agreement. You think I'm running a charity here? I'm not going to forgive you just because you asked me to. You're going to jail until you can pay up. You wronged me. You wronged me, and I take that personally. Forgive you? Who do you think you are? How many of us have ever stood in judgment of other people with those kinds of feelings of self-righteousness? It's almost as if we're making ourselves into kings. But are we really seeing reality accurately? Because in truth, there is only one king. And that king has repaid debts that we could never repay on our own. So why do we go around acting as if the world owes us? If you were paying attention to the story, you might remember that this parable has kind of a dark ending. The king finds out about this first slave's hypocrisy, so he calls them back to the castle. He says, I forgave you an absurd amount of debt. Remember that? And then I hear that you went out and you refused to for- forgive your friend who had a relatively small debt. So listen closely to what happened. The king handed this slave over to be tortured. And on its face, we might think, man, that's kind, of, that's kind of a tough one because if this king represents God, does that mean that God is going to torture us if we refuse to forgive people? Well, let me ask you a question. If you hold on to resentments, are you tortured by them? Is it possible that torture is actually a pretty accurate word to describe the state of the state of unforgiveness when we live year after year holding on to resentments that we refuse to let go of? Mark Twain had a great saying about holding on to resentments. He said, if you hold on to resentment, it's like drinking poison and then expecting the other person to die. Who's really being hurt? Of course, you are. You are being hurt tortured, not because God hates you, but because you're refusing to let God in. Here's the problem with trying to play God. If you're trying to play God, you can't be in relationship with God, can you? I mean, that's why forgiveness is such a serious issue. When you don't forgive, you're not just denying mercy to someone else, you're cutting yourself off from the memory of the mercy that God has shown you, and that means you're not seeing reality accurately. 
You're forgetting what other people have done for you to help you, to love you, to look past your mistakes and accept you anyway. Now, sitting here in our pews, safe and pretty comfortable, it can be hard to remember sacrifices that were made for us. How often do we think about the fact that inside this very room where you are all sitting right now, there were British soldiers and Hessian mercenaries who had taken over this church and were intent on killing Americans right here in this room. And here's the thing, if we are not reminded of facts like this, you know what we'll do? We'll forget them. And that's why July 4th is important. That's also why church is important. What do we really do when we gather here every week? We remember. Church is a ritual of collective memory. We get together and we tell stories in order to remember what God has done because we understand that memory shapes identity. And if you look for it, you'll see that the Bible is full of this wisdom that we have to keep reminding ourselves of what God has done for us, else we will forget it. What did Jesus say to his friends at the Last Supper? Do this in remembrance of me. Take my body and my blood in church so that you don't forget what I've done for you. All the sacraments, all the teachings are about the same thing. What is baptism? It's a reminder that before you could do anything, God already claimed you with his love. What are the hymns we sing? They are reminders of God's activity in the past. What are the prayers that we give? They're reminders of God's continuing activity in our lives today. What are these sermons that we preach? They remind us of the fact that God is at work even when we're not paying attention. In order to overcome our negativity bias, we have to be constantly reminded of the good things in life, right? Again, I'm not saying that bad things don't happen. Forgiveness doesn't require us to overlook bad things, but it does require us to see life accurately, that on the whole, life is just an unimaginable gift of love. And if we want to see reality accurately, we have to remind ourselves of that day after day after day until it becomes the core reality because it is the objective reality. It is objectively true that life is a gift from a creator who didn't have to create us and who didn't have to redeem us and who doesn't have to sustain us. And therefore, if we say that we're interested in truth, ultimately we will come to the belief that everything that exists is grace. Let's pray. Holy God, we are humbled by the love that you have shown us. We know that this love preceded us. We recognize that this love is beyond what we can understand. And yet we also know that together we can live within this love. We can practice it and we can carry it out into the world in your name. Remind us of your love and may our memory of all the things that you have done help us to forgive ourselves and one another. Amen.